You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word then to John chapter 2. John 2, 1 through 11, we'll hone in on this morning as we uh, uh, just continue to take uh, the next section in our verse-by-verse and passage-by-passage study of, uh, of the Gospel of John. If you're new with us, let me just say again, good morning and welcome. It's a great time to uh, be here as we just kicked off this uh, study here in John's Gospel each and every week. Something for us to believe, something for us to apply, something that God wants to do in us through this, uh, uh, through this great Gospel. And now as we jump into uh, chapter 2, this section really uh, it turns the corner and it marks the first of Jesus' signs that he does to prove what was claimed about him in chapter 1. If you remember or have read through John 1, um, if you're unfamiliar, read through it and you'll begin to see there are multiple titles or references of Jesus that are laid out there in chapter 1. And now through these signs and in these uh, uh, coming passages here, uh, Jesus will just through his life and his words and his miracles will begin to prove that he is uh, actually worthy of these titles and he is who they are, what they are claiming about him. And in this first one, it's a, uh, he, he does this sign in the context of a, of a wedding. And now as we talk about uh, weddings here in the wedding day, it is typically a day full of lots of joy for a bride and groom, right? Many uh, girls uh, dream about their wedding day for years and years with, uh, uh, with all kinds of expectations and all kinds of hopes, uh, often that are unattainable uh, about their uh, wedding day, but they dream about it. And many dads uh, 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 dread that day. <laughs> Whether just the thought of giving over their precious daughter to this, uh, to this young man, uh, uh, or just the thought of giving over their life savings to fund this day, they, the, the thought can be hard. Although some other dads maybe are glad to see their daughter finally uh, uh, moving out. Wherever you are, the day is typically a day full of joy, isn't it? At least it is supposed to be for the bride and groom, a day of joy with those that they love as they commit their life together and food that they uh, love and music that they love to listen to. And it's a day full of joy unless there's a problem. Unless something uh, uh, happens that was unexpected or unanticipated that throws it all uh, off kilter. Something gets spelled wrong in the program that didn't get uh, uh, caught ahead of time. The best man says the wrong uh, girl's name during his, uh, his, his speech or the dress gets stained before the service or the ring gets dropped in the middle of the service as the best man clumsily hands it to the, to the, to the pastor and then all of a sudden that ring just goes ding, 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 ding and rolls its way into who knows where. But in those days or in those moments, it's a wedding day catastrophe, not a wedding day celebration. And the same is true when we come to our text today. In the middle of this wedding, there's a crisis, a wine crisis as the wine runs out. And so join me in the scripture here as we read this, uh, uh, this account of Jesus' first sign, his first miracle proving who he is. I'm just going to read it for us. You follow along in your Bible, and uh, we will go from there. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, this is God's word for God's people today. And really, as I said, this marks the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry and what he would begin to do uh, as he would proclaim the word of God and do the works of God uh, on this earth. And so, like I said, chapter 1, many witnesses. One primary witness and John the baptizer and many claims made about Jesus. And now uh, these are the proofs of these titles. And this is the first one where he speaks. Jesus speaks the water into wine at a wedding. And some historical context, just a, a brief thing here to help you understand uh, what is going on here. Wedding celebrations in those days were often seven days, a full week affair uh, as they would uh, celebrate with each day some different things happening. And it was full of a lot of fun. And unlike our traditions now where the bride pays for it, it's the groom's family that uh, would pay for this celebration. And what they would drink here is just a common drink really in that society in those days was wine. Very common uh, as a drink. They had lots of grapes, lots of water. You put those things together without refrigeration, and over time, what happens? Fermentation happens, and it becomes this wine. A little different maybe than we uh, know wine today, and they would often dilute it down to, uh, with, with water to just uh, make it stretch and last longer. But there is in the midst of this wedding celebration now happening where the crisis happens in verse 3 that the wine runs out. And what Jesus does in the midst of this, uh, uh, this, uh, this crisis is Jesus is now showing his true colors to this small group of, of people that are here, likely happening even before the rest of the disciples are called, which is why only John records it. But here he is proving to these people that he is indeed the word and that his word has power. His word changes things. He is proving what John claimed about him, that he was the word there in the beginning. And here's really what's at the foundation of this passage. Here's what we are meant to believe uh, by this account here in the wedding is this, is that Jesus' word has an ability unlike any other. Write that down in your notes there. Write it down in the margins of your Bible. But it is here through Jesus' words. He speaks only a few things, and yet everything drastically changes. Jesus' word has an ability like no other. Like in the days of creation, God speaks and things appear out of nothing. God's word has, has this power as he speaks into the nothingness and, and, and the void of those early days. He speaks and things appear. As Psalm 33, 9 says, For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
This is a power unlike any other uh, that uh, any person may possess. Nobody else has this type of creative ability through their words. Poetic words can move our emotions, but only God's word can move us into eternal life. Parental words can give instruction to their child, but only God's word can give life to their soul. And so through this wedding account and through this wine crisis, we really learn the ability that Jesus' word has as he speaks. And here's what we learn as we come uh, to it in this first section. At Jesus' word, write this down, point number one, at Jesus' word, our relationships are refined. See, as Jesus speaks here in these early, uh, as we're presented or confronted with this crisis, we begin to see what Jesus' word can really do in the context of our relationships. And so come back to the, the text here in just verse 1, and let's, let's understand a little bit more of the, the context here. He says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, many of John's passages here at the beginning have this, like, time stamp. This was on the third day after uh, they were in Bethany. There is about a three-day journey to Cana in Galilee. Really, we don't know the precise location today, but it is likely there just a normal three-day walk from between those two cities. And Jesus and his mom Mary, though she's not named, uh, are there. And his first disciples were there when this crisis hits, as I said in verse 3, the wine runs out. Wine was common throughout the scriptures and as a symbol of joy. Right? Uh, it was a common drink, as I said, and now this is the crisis. But it would probably do us well here to just pause for a moment and to talk about drinking for a second. Uh, to talk about what the Bible teaches in a larger context. Because we come to a passage like this, and some can make this mean more than it is intended to mean from uh, this text. And others kind of get all shook up about it. Like, what is Jesus doing here uh, creating alcohol? And, and, and does, uh, you know, what, what, what's really going on here? And so I think it would be good for us to just establish some biblical wisdom and some the Bible's teaching when it comes to things like alcohol. All right? Now, here's just kind of a primary principle, uh, if you will, as we think about uh, drinking. Christians following Christ are free to drink and also free not to drink. Okay? What is out of bounds? Well, obviously drunkenness, or maybe this isn't obvious, but drunkenness is a sin. Right? This leads to debauchery. Anything, whether it's alcohol or any other substance that uh, controls us to the point where we are inebriated and we lose our faculties, our ability to reason or to think clearly, uh, let alone to worship and serve others, is a sin. Rather, we're not to be controlled by alcohol, wine, or anything else, but rather controlled by whom? Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5, right? Let's not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but let us rather be filled with the spirit and so drunkenness is debauchery we're like well i like to just get get out of hand a, a little bit i need to drown away something no 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 we're that, that that's that's out of bounds for a believer someone to follow christ but the second uh, uh, principle also here is dependence is also a sin whether it's alcohol or anything else where we think like hey i just i need a glass of wine in order to sleep at night I come home from work, it's been a hard day, I just need a, I just need a beer in order to, uh, to, to, to function, or I'm going out with friends and I just, I have to have in order to, you know, unwind a, a little bit, you know, this type of dependence on anything but the Lord that we turn to in those moments shows that our heart is not dependent on the Lord, and we have to be very careful in those moments where to be only filled and controlled by God's Spirit. 
And so while we are free to drink, it's not uh, for you. It may be like, you know what? It's better that I just stay away from it. Praise God for that, for that manner of self-control. But if it is something that within moderation, a way that honors God, we still also uh, walk in a way that is pleasing to him and understanding the people around us and understanding of the, excuse me, the effect or the control that it may have in our heart and mind. For no matter where you are in this, it is good, uh, if it, even if you can have a drink, it is good from time to time to slay the beast, right? I had a pastor friend, he said he would just, uh, 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 often he would just need to show it who's boss, right? To, uh, or if, even if it was a part of the daily routine or just a part of the rhythms of his life or just even a social or occasional things, it is good to sometimes just uh, say no to it for months. Not just days. Anybody can do things for days or even weeks, but just for months to say, you know what? I just need to show this thing. Who's boss? I have one master in my life, and his name is Jesus. He is my Lord. He is the one to whom I follow. He is the one that I, may, er, that I submit my life to. And so in one sense, though it's not necessarily the point here uh, in the whole text, as Christians, our relationship with alcohol is refined. It's elevated. It's improved. We, uh, we don't approach alcohol. We don't consume alcohol uh, like the world and by worldly standards where it's just a normal everyday part of it. It's just, you know, it's just kind of what we do in society. no. That is not our standard. Our relationship with this, uh, like with people, with, like anything with following the Lord, gets elevated. We live by a different standard to the glory of God in all things. All right. Now, hopefully we're clear on that. Uh, happy to talk more about your situation or any of these things I said afterwards, but that's kind of like a commercial break. Now back to the text and uh, what's going on here. Right? I think it's helpful for us to just think through that because this is the crisis that we have to deal with. The, here is there's, there's a wedding crisis. The wine has run out and Mary, Jesus' mom, knows who to turn to to fix it, right? She goes to Jesus and presents her. They have no wine. This, this would be a catastrophe. Like the food has run out. The wine has run out. You know, it, just think of like worst case scenario. All these people are here to celebrate and they have nothing to drink. And so she knows the one who is special and can who fix it. But look in verse four. What do you make of Jesus' response to his mom? I have no wine. What does he say to her? Woman, what does this have to do with me, right? Is that the sense of it? Hopefully not, right? That would be so disrespectful, so dishonorable, right? If I were to speak to my mom in that way, who, by the way, happens to be here uh, providentially, or if your kids were to speak to you that way, it would be, it'd be so disrespectful, right? It would be so dishonorable to speak in, in, in such a, a tone like that. And yet that's our context as we would read that. But in those days, this word is, is not, not as derogatory or as, a, as harsh or dishonorable as that. It was a, a more affectionate. It was just a, a way to respond to a woman. But in Jesus' answer, it does show that their relationship has changed particularly when we think of this and the second part of his response, that his hour has not yet come. When we grasp this, that there has been a change in their relationship where Jesus is no longer just the boy, the son that she raised, this, uh, the, you know, the kid that she had to feed and take care of along the way, but now he is the Messiah. He is the son of God, and his mission has now officially begun. 
Up until this point, yes, maybe just a, a son, but now uh, at this point, he ha- Jesus has a single track mind straight to the cross from here and says here, this hour has not come. And, and note this, you can maybe even like put a little like clock sign or an hourglass symbol in your Bible there because this is the first of many uh, uh, phrases like this. We we'll, we'll, won't come to it again until chapter 7, but there are many things that come to him. Jesus is like, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And then there's a change when he says, all right, my hour has come. And what is he referring to there? The cross. He's referring to the very point in which he came where he knew the hour of his death and what he was sent from heaven to do. It was that hour that everything he would do from here on out was just single mind, single purpose for that. And he, he, he lived and deliberately, intentionally about it. And so he's like, I, I, I'm on a bigger mission. I see this. There's a wine crisis here. But what does this have to do with me? Now, what if I were to tell you that you, the, the hour of your death would be three years from now, 3 p.m., January 22nd, 2026. You have exactly three years to live. What would you fill your life with? What, what would you do? What would you cho- how would you choose to spend what limited time and talent and treasure that God had entrusted to you? What would you seek to uh, uh, fill it with? Probably some relationships, maybe. Maybe some relationships that need to be reconciled or restored or, or, or refined or redefined. You would likely fill it with these things and uh, amongst of other things. But note this because here's what is being drawn out just in Jesus' words here is that uh, the, the effect that Jesus has on our relationships. At his word, because he is God, relationships are restored. Where there are hope for, for, for reconciliation to happen through forgiveness, that it is not said and done. That what is maybe true of a personal relationship now, so long as the person is living and all that, it doesn't have to stay this way. There is hope for reconciliation. But his word also changes just uh, how friendships are, are, are played out, where friendships now have meaning. They're not just people to fill the loneliness gap in our life or to hang out and have a blast with, but now God puts friends in our life to mutually encourage one another, to sharpen each other through uh, life. Our friendships and relationships take on a new meaning. Even in marriage, marriage is made to be something much more beautiful, not just a transaction, not just the legal benefits that we get on uh, on our taxes, but now marriage is made to be something much more glorious, much more freeing, where there's there's no need for self-protection, of withholding assets just in case we get abandoned or or, or withholding uh, uh, vulnerable parts of us just in case we are are rejected. No, we can live with vulnerability and be true uh, to uh, our spouse where we don't have to look for ways of escape or whatever it might be, where marriage gets refined, where it gets improved, where it is something in God's hands to make us more like his son Christ. And yes, in all of these relationships, yes, there are still those moments where we are hurt, but where they no longer need to be deal breakers, where we cut people off or move on or claim that they're toxic or whatever it might be, but where we can look to Christ, where he refines these relationships, where even as we see just as Jesus and Mary, no longer just this son and mom relationship, but now he is the son of God, her Messiah, and even that is much greater than her maternal uh, identity over him. And she embraces it. She knows it. She's not offended. She's just like, tells the servants, even in verse 5, like, look to him. Just do whatever he tells you because she knows who this man is. 
And so even in his answer here, Jesus will do something about the wine. Even as he just speaks a simple command, just some simple words, a simple but purposeful one here. Because see, at Jesus, where not only our relationships refined, but as we move through the text, look at where he moves to this. Our habits are reformed. Just at Jesus speaking, here is the word of God. Our habits get reformed. They take on new shape. Beginning in verse 6 here, look at the, the, this, uh, this, uh, the, the scene here, the context about these purification jars. Now, maybe some explanation is helpful. You're unfamiliar with what all this is about. But these six jars, uh, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, I mean, that's pretty big, these stone jars, they were common in those days that would be like outside the house or alongside in, in an area, and they would get filled with water and they were basically where you would come and wash your hands. Like a mud room that we have where we wash up before we enter in the house. They would wash their hands there. They would often wash like dishes and other things in these waters to purify them before they would come into the house. And honestly, if they knew, the people knew that they were drinking the hand-washing water that was now turned wine, they would be appalled at this. But This is what Jesus is coming. He's confronting and he's using this uh, habit, these purification habits to overturn it. He'll do so later. Mark records this in Mark chapter 7. He'll take this even a a step further here in teaching on it and in overthrowing or reforming these holiness habits that they have. Just listen to this. Mark 7, 1 to 5. You can turn there if you want or look it up later, but just listen to this. When Jerusalem, the Pharisees saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, okay? For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but walk with defiled hands? Again, that's Mark 7, 1 through 5. And so you can see what they would wash in these things. The Pharisees are bent out of shape because the disciples are eating with unwashed hands. But here's the point in this. These Old Testament rituals are giving way to something greater. Jesus is using what these common habits of theirs at his word to take us something greater. He is changing the way that they approach God and think about holiness, even by just giving this simple command there. He tells the servants, go fill the jars with water. And so they do. And we have this little just like a a snippet here. And says, and he filled it to the brim. The, the, the servants fill it to the brim, which is very important because it's showing here that they didn't like leave a little bit extra and then, you know, Jesus or somebody walked by with like some powdered stuff or whatever, like poured in or something. There's no room, to, nothing to be added, but now they are, what they're left with is some 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now that's a lot of wine, y'all, right? That's a, that's a lot of wine, whether it's 20 or 30 somewhere, somewhere 120 to 180 gallons of wine. I've been to weddings and wedding venues and seen some of the liquor packages that those places uh, offer, but this is like next level, right? This, this is a ton here. They had plenty for the wedding guests in the celebration and lots left over to, to last this new couple for a long time. And let's just be sure of this. There was never a better, more expensive, more exquisite bottle of wine in the history of ever, right? Everything Jesus touches is the best. Everything that he speaks and creates is the best. 
for wine form, God designed the process, even of fermentation, right? That happened by the process as uh, water and grapes and these things were brought together. And here Jesus does it immediately and out of nothing and in abundance. That's the way of Christ. That's what the word can do. This is what God does. This is what he does by totally turning these habits upside down of how they come to the Lord, how they, uh, what they think about these purification rituals and, and, and habits. And so let me just ask this. Is it, is it bad to wash your hands and to wash your kitchen utensils? No, of course, of course it's not right? It is good to wash your hands, right? Especially like right now, all of us here, we probably shook some hands. We'll shake some hands later. Please wash your hands with soap and water and sing happy birthday two times or whatever we teach our kids, right? Should you wash your spoons and your kitchen, dish, kitchen dishes and all those things? Yeah, especially because you're going to invite somebody over and they're going to eat from your uh, stuff. Please wash your, your dishes. But is it bad to do these things in order to appear holy before God in an attempt to make yourself clean or to appear more righteous before other people? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe you're thinking like, well, that's, that's ludicrous. Who really thinks that? Washing your hands, washing your pots makes you holy before the Lord. Who really thinks that? Well, maybe that's not you. Maybe it's not hand washing, and that's not a ho habit of holiness that you think uh, in this way. But maybe it's some habits in the way that we dress and how we wear our clothes and, and with the jewelry and the makeup and the things that we put on in order to impress others or to clean ourselves up in order to come before the Lord. Maybe it's our, our, our habits and, and how we portray ourselves on social media and only posting the polished version of ourselves and the vacations that we go on and, and, and leaving out the terror that we are in between all the vacations with our, our family. Maybe it's even just the habits of how we self-disclose and the way that we talk about things and the way when people ask how we're doing and we always just give the, uh, the it's okay, it's good, yeah, and we never really disclose the things that are happening or the way that we're struggling or the things that are going on in our life, but we just seek to give this, uh, this version of ourselves that is more holy in our habits than we actually are. And see it, Jesus, just simple word as he's coming to prove that he is the word, that his word has an ability like no other. It's to these habits that Jesus' word really reforms. He sees behind the heart of it all. Even when it's perplexing to the people who are experiencing it all, and he won't stop until he's completely reformed and transformed uh, uh, you. Down to the outward things, our habits on the exterior, even down into our thinking to the very worldview in which we view the things that happen to us and the way things are happening in society and the way we just view the circumstances in, 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 in our world. See, at Jesus' word, not only are our relationships refined and our habits reformed, but here's the third thing from the last one. gets redefined. Now, what, what happens here is, is, is very interesting. See, the master of the feast, which you might think of it like the wedding coordinator, Many of us have that. that that host. He calls the groom over and he makes really just just this profound observation in chapter or in verse 10. Rather, he says to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And he, he makes this. They serve the wine. They have all this. He just he 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 
talks about it, and apparently there was this custom in that day that you start with the high-dollar wine, and then as things go, you know, you start with the, the bottom shelf, or you end with the bottom shelf stuff there. It seems to make sense in uh, and what is. Apparently there is that custom, and he just talks about it. Everyone does this, and then we're left hanging. There's no response from the groom. There's no response from Jesus. There's nothing that we are given about the, the, the wedding. There's no explanation. We're just confronted with the ability of Jesus up against conventional thinking. And redemption, look here. Jesus is unconventional. He isn't conventional. He, he doesn't adhere to conventional thinking and, and, and the status quo or what is politically correct or socially acceptable. Those are not the standards by which he plays. As a matter of fact, it seems like as we read through our Bibles over and over again, he confronts this conventional thinking and overturns it in such a way to prove that his way is better. Even all the way back in the book of, of Genesis, you have this, uh, uh, this time where societally they, the firstborn child would inherit all the family name, all the family estate, all the, all the wealth. And as God passes his promise down through Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, God turns that around and passes the promise through the secondborn. For it was Esau who was born first and then Jacob. He just turns it on its head and continues on. You get to Samuel uh, later in, that, in, in your Bible, and the Israelites wanted a king. A king like who? A king like the, the nations. They wanted one uh, that was chosen based on the conventional thinking of the day. And as you look around, what makes for a great godly spiritual leader? What did they choose King Saul based on? He was tall, and he was good-looking, handsome, right? And those, like, obviously, right, if you want somebody to spiritually follow, you look at the crowd and you say, well, who's the tallest and who has the best smile, right? Being sarcastic in there. It's conventional thinking. No, God's man to lead his nation was the seventh born. A, a young musical shepherd out tending sheep, not knowing up from down, have no, uh, you know, at that point, no, zero leadership skills, likely other than just herding some sheep and playing his harp turns conventional thinking upside down. You get to the time of, of uh, Jesus here and the Israelites there in, uh, in, in the promised land, they wanted a mighty military ruler uh, as their Messiah to overthrow the oppressive Roman government that was there. I was telling them what they can and can't do, was, uh, was leading them with an iron fist and God wanted to send not a military ruler but a humble servant to overthrow their unruly hearts by dying on a cross. Instead of being accepted and exalted by uh, the masses, he was rejected and sent to the cross. Instead of being lifted high on a throne, he was lifted high on a cross after being beaten within inches of his life. See, when we come to a text like this, Jesus is just speaking some simple things and it totally changes how we think about things. See, what's most profound maybe about this statement from the host is that he begins with, everyone serves. In church, as Christ followers, when that's like the line of thinking, when that's the worldview, well, everybody parents this way. Everybody does this. Everybody thinks like this. That should cause us right there, like our discernment radar should just go off and we should just say, well, does that make it right? Just because everybody says something is socially acceptable doesn't always make it true nor right. 
make salsa, for example. Everyone eats salsa before their meal. It's on the appetizer menu. But salsa is a delicacy given by God for our palate. Salsa should be a dessert, right? It should be on the dessert menu, or, or really everything, right? We started, let's start a new hashtag, make salsa dessert or something, right? Like salsa is so good. And this, I mean, I'm mostly joking in there. But Jesus just turns our worldviews upside down, how we view the things that happen around us. And don't take this to the extreme. Don't think we just need to overturn law and order or anything like, everybody drives on the right side of the road. I'm going to drive on the left side. No, no, don't do that. That's rebellion, right? That's not what we're getting at here. Many have tried uh, throughout the ages to be revolutionaries for Jesus and here. We would be missing the point to think that way. Jesus is redefining uh, our, our worldview. His word challenges our thinking to the very core of who we are and how we like view people and the inconveniences that we so often attribute to people. Man, I, this neighbor does this, or uh, the, you know, the, why do they keep doing this? Or what, this person is, is not just a tool to be used for our, our pleasure, but, or, but as, a, as, as an image bearer. Someone who is lost, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're people who need rescue from Christ. Challenges it. God's word challenges just how we, how we value life. This is what we talked about today, how we value all life from wound to tomb as valuable and precious in the sight of God. Created as image bearers of him, not just an expendable resource, not just as something uh, that, is, uh, that we can do with or without, but valuable treasured, beautiful, even down to the place of, uh, of how we view gender and sexuality. God's word challenges our thinking and the social norms and conventional thinking of our day that male and female are beautifully created by God, distinct and complementary, given by God to equally and together uh, points to the image of God, not just a structure for our determination, not just something to embrace uh, at our whims or something that uh, we, can, we can tamper with or change. God's word challenges our thinking about marriage. What it, what it is, uh, how it's a tool in his hands designed for our holiness to make a man and a woman more like Christ as they live in this committed covenant together within the context of a church family growing together like this. It's not just a, a, a transaction that's merely for our happiness. It challenges our worldview and how we view things like money. It's a resource to steward thermometer of our values not merely something to hoard or to make ourselves rich and on and on and on we can go jesus challenges our thinking at the very core of how we view work and parenting and sports and vacation and everything in between nothing is off limits or in a separate category or out of touch with following jesus no, this, this, what, what he's getting at, even in this, that this first sign is drawing our attention away from the crisis, away from the things that are happening and taking us, uh, our attention to the glorious deity of Jesus, of how his word is unlike any other and his word will change as at the very core. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the individual crises in our life. Of course he does. His word can speak that, but he's here to do something greater. He's done something greater even in our life. And this was a sign, the first sign 
a sign is something, it's, it's better than a miracle. It's a miracle that points to something greater. Kent Hughes, a pastor and commentator, he says it's a, a miracle that conveys a deeper teaching. Something to uh, believe. It's called a sign here because it's not just, the amazing thing is not this, that it happened, but that somebody has the power to do it. And that person is God. He's the one who's glorified. Moses had a, had a miracle. His first one was to turn the water of the Nile into blood, and God was glorified through that. But here Jesus turns water into wine, and he himself is glorified. Because he manifested his glory. What does all that mean? It just simply means that he demonstrated he is God. For it is glory that emanates from God, only glory out from and around him. Not sin, nothing like that can be in his presence, but this glory that emanates from him. And when you encounter God's glory, you can't help but being changed. Things being redefined, things being reformed, things being refined in your life. He changes you to the point where we must believe it. Just what his disciples do. I pray that you do as well. As God is calling you to himself to maybe leave behind some old ways of thinking, some old ways of, of living, some old ways of relating to people, that by his grace, he is calling you to come and believe, to come and follow him, to come and take him at his word, that his way is so much better. His word can do something unlike anything you have ever experienced. And that's something to celebrate, isn't it? just like they were celebrating at this wedding in Cana with great joy at the union of this man and this woman and now this great wine. So we too rejoice celebrating our union with Christ. We as the bride, he as the groom, joyfully we responding and submitting to his leadership, his lordship in our life. Why? Because he joyfully sacrificed his life, leaving behind heaven's throne to come and walk this earth and rose again and awaits us and we await the marriage supper of the lamb one day what a day that will be huh church would you pray with me now as we close god in heaven here we are before your word confronted with some realities about your power confronted with some realities about what uh, you can do and desire to do in our life and so we just begin by asking for your help Lord, would you help us? These are weighty words. There's things to, uh, that, 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 that are going to cost if we really follow you and believe this. And so I'd pray, uh, even now, God, maybe there's somebody who's never bowed the knee to you, Christ, who, who are walking just in their own way according to the wisdom of the world, according to just conventional thoughts about life and relationships. And would you do that work? Would you just flip the script, so to speak? They would follow you. But for all of us, God, we also need your help. We need more of your grace. Grace to understand this. Grace to live it out. Grace to see where we can't see. Grace to walk out these relationships and these habits and these worldviews, Lord. Thank you that we can ask for your help. That you will give your grace. And that you will receive all the glory for it. Not us. We don't want it. It's part of the problem in the passage. But we want to be a part of those who give you the praise. 
glory to you. We pray these things now.